My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Good work getting yourself here this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 16 and be looking at those verses, verses 16 through 33. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to that part of the text. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about joy. And uh, before we jump in, I want to ask you the question, have you ever been in a season that felt heavy, uh, felt dark, uh, maybe maybe felt more like sorrow than it did feel like rejoicing and joy? And then on the back end, uh, there was this flood of joy that preceded as you walked through and got through that season. Um, That's what Jesus is going to talk to his disciples about today. He's going to look him in the eyes and say, listen, the next chapter in your story is one that's going to include some pain points. There's going to be sorrow and there's going to be tears. And yet on the back end, I want to let you know there's no reason to be insecure because good is going to triumph. Um, I'm going to take you from sorrow and give you my joy, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And um, I want to say I, I connect to this story and I connect to this verse where he said he moved our sorrow to a place of joy. Um, it was about this time last year that my wife was expecting our third child, and um, we went to the doctors and realized there was going to be some medical complications. Um, because of that, it was going to make things difficult to carry this baby to full term, and it was going to be hard in delivery. There was some risk there. So uh, the medical professionals got together, they gathered, did their thing, and then said, hey, we're actually going to check your wife in on bed rest, uh, and she's going to be here until you deliver that baby. And what that meant for me is uh, I became a single dad to our two-year-old little girl and our four-year-old son overnight, and my wife uh, spent over two months in a hospital room, uh, laying on a bed, not able to leave to go get a fresh cup of coffee, not able to walk outside and feel the sun on her face. Um, for the first 24 hours, I was getting texts that was saying, this is awesome. Um, we have small children. Uh, we don't watch cable, but we pay for it. And so that's a, a, a frustration. But for a couple of days, she was just, hey, this is amazing. They bring me cookies, milk. I don't have kids crying. I haven't changed their dirty diaper. This is incredible. And by like day three, she was over it. Okay. And she's isolated. She misses the kids. She misses home. Um, that Christmas, we actually spent Christmas in the hospital. We ate like cafeteria food and had like a little Charlie Brown tree. It was rather depressing as we watched our Christmas Hallmark movies at the hospital. Um, and Uh, You know, that was a really hard season for me. I thought um, kind of this season of our life has been insane, okay? So if you've been around City Light, you realize this thing has been like just an absolute movement of God. It's been a rocket ship, and we're planting churches, and we're growing, and we're doing building projects, and it's been insane. And so at some point in my life, I believe that I have what what people call a high capacity. I thought, man, I got all these kids, and the church is going well, and I'm able to kind of keep up with all of the chaos of my life. And then my wife went to the hospital, And I realized like how low my scorecard really needed to be. At the end of each day, the thing I asked are, are my children alive? Okay. Like that was, I went into survival mode while my wife was gone. Like eating vegetables, suggested, not necessary. Okay. (laughs) Bath time may or may not happen. Okay. If we're hitting one a week, I'll just put them in some essential oils and just call it good. Okay. (laughs) Like that's where we were at. You know, wearing shoes in public recommended, but there's no tickets. Okay. They, I found out they will not kick you out of Target if you walk around with your kids barefoot. It's just, 
You guys are like, that's gross. Okay, but it, it happens, okay? So um, all that to say is we moved from a season that was really heavy and honestly hard for our family into a season of absolute joy. And the moment happened when I got the phone call and my wife said, hey, today's the day. We're having the baby get to the hospital. And after a few moments of delivery, uh, Jude Lewis Haruska uh, came into this world and he's healthy and he's doing great and he's eight months old. And uh, in that moment, man, the environment of our home and of our heart just changed. Um, when we got to see God sustain us, provide for us, carry us through a hard time, and then give us this incredible gift of this little boy named Jude, it was an absolute uh, gift that just brought about tons of joy in our life. And um, that's the kind of thing that Jesus is going to talk to his disciples about today. He's going to say, I've been in the business for 2,000 plus years of looking at people who are stuck in seasons of sorrow, and I've carried them through, and I'm ushered in joy. John, or in Psalm 30, he said, he's turned my weeping into dancing. If you've experienced the power of God in your life, you understand that he, sometimes he meets you in places of pain, and then he'll lead you out of those places into a greater joy. And if you remember in John chapter 16, the context to this conversation about joy is kind of significant. Jesus is, um, he's already completed his earthly ministry uh, or his earthly public ministry. So he's traveled to towns. He's done the teaching and the preaching and the healing and the miracles and all of those things are behind him. Jesus finds himself in Jerusalem and he's got less than 24 hours uh, on this side of eternity. Soon, that very night, it's Thursday night in Jerusalem, just that night, he's going to be arrested. Judas took a bribe. He's leading Roman authorities to Jesus. Uh, they're going to arrest him on Friday morning. He's going to go be put on trial. He's going to be accused of crimes he did not commit. And then by Friday afternoon, he's going to be nailed to a Roman cross. He's going to be publicly executed. And it's at this moment where Jesus looks at his disciples. He said, this is what's going to happen. Don't be surprised by the, by the season of sorrow that is ahead of you. But my friends, do not be discouraged because I love to write new chapters of the story. And there will be joy abounding on the other end. Here's why I think this matters to us. City Light, I don't think this is going to be a history lesson today or a theology lesson of just what is joy and how do we experience and what's this look like. And no, 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 no. I think, I think that Jesus has this word in the Bible for our joy. I think our joy is at stake. I think we were hardwired to experience joy. And I think all of us have a hunger and a desire for it. But I think so often what we do is we settle for what we call circumstantial happiness. Have you guys ever heard this? I think all of us are in the pursuit of happiness, whether we, we go about that in different ways. But here's what happiness looks like. If I can just get you to do what I want you to do, then I'll be happy. If I can just get the promotion that I think I need, if I could just graduate from college, then I could just maybe get married, then I could just get, have some kids, and then if the kids would just leave, not come home, we're going to live in a trailer down by the river and have no address, okay? Like, there's just no markings. Um, if they would just leave, uh, if we could just retire, if I could just go fishing by myself. Like, Joe, happiness is always out there somewhere. It's just, you know, there's a lot of false finish lines, has anybody else had that? I had that like this week. Like, you know what? If I could just get through a couple of these events, then I'm going to find the happiness that I'm really looking for because I'm going to have time and I'm going to be able to hang out. What am I going to do with all this happiness? And then you realize, no, no, no. Jesus didn't come from heaven to earth to coach you on how to get happy. He came from heaven to earth to give you a joy that's not tied to your circumstances. And that's crazy good news. 
Because the kind of happiness that we try to hold on to, it's, it's slippery at best, is it not? It slips through our hands real quickly. One minute my son is in my lap and he's saying, Dad, you are, you're such a gift to me. The next, I mean, it, it gets messy. I'm just going to tell you that, okay? So momentary happiness, if that's the thing we're building our life around, I don't think as Christians that's what Jesus came to offer. I think Jesus came to give us joy and abounding joy. And I want to show you guys how this gets played out in our text. So let me show you guys three points today. Uh, First one is this. Uh, uh, Our joy was achieved by Jesus. Our joy was achieved by Jesus. Jesus uh, starts this dialogue with his disciples by making this somewhat vague statement. He says, in a little while, you won't see me anymore. And then in a little while, you'll see me again. That's super clear, Jesus. Thank you. I mean, are we playing hide and go seek? Are we going to do a game? I don't understand. And so what happens is the Jesus' disciples are a little too timid to like go back and kind of ask a question. The moment is kind of serious. And so instead they kind of pull off and start to have a dialogue. What do you think this means? And they're all confused. But Jesus is a good teacher. He understands what's happening. And so he, he, he offers a little explanation into this statement. Look at verse 19 through 20. Here's what he says. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So Jesus is going to say, there's this massive disconnect. The world is going to be high-fiving, and yet you are going to be crying. And what Jesus is saying is, he's pointing us all forward to his crucifixion, to the moment when Jesus would be nailed to that Roman cross. He's saying, listen, listen, here's what's in front of you. You guys got to get this. I'm moments away from not hanging out here and talking to you guys about theology and about God. I'm moments away from being put on trial. And he's saying, here's what's going to happen. For me and you, we understand Jesus' crucifixion. And many of us understand why that was necessary for us to experience eternal life. But for these men, this was not a theological discussion. For these men, this was highly personal. Jesus was the person who took a risk on them and said, come follow me. Jesus was the one who had ate with them and listened to them and prayed with them and prayed for them and done life with them. Jesus was their friend. And when they saw their friend, Jesus, nailed to that cross, it ushered in emotional sorrow. And to make things worse, it says, man, the religious leaders who didn't like Jesus because he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and people that they didn't want to associate with, they would high five. The religious leaders who got tired of Jesus claiming that he was more than some teacher, but that he was actually God, they would be celebrating. We finally silenced Jesus. The Romans, they thought they eliminated a threat. There was this massive disconnect between the, the environment of the world and what was happening in the hearts of the disciples. But Jesus says, listen, you know what? This is all going down on a Friday, but guess what? On Sunday, God is going to usher you into, into a whole new kind of joy. Because Jesus Christ is going to raise from the grave. There's going to be a new chapter to the story. And yes, your sorrow will be temporary, but your joy will be ushered in for all of eternity. Let me show you guys how he explains this and illustrates this verse 22 through, uh, 21 through 22. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish uh, for joy that a human being was born into the world. 
so also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take you or take your joy from you. It's amazing. Men like to think we're super tough. I'm like, dude, why are you tough? Did you see the way I crushed that 16-ounce steak? Like, we think we're tough because we eat large amounts of protein. Chill. Have you seen what a woman does in childbirth? We all, as dudes, just need to really quickly acknowledge the strongest one in our family is our wives, okay? I have been there for all three of the births of my children, and there's this consistent theme that is present. Lots of discomfort and a strong appetite for drugs, okay? It is the one season where she's like, put something in the spine, rub something. I don't even care. I just want to not feel any part of my lower half of my body right now, okay? It is not a comfortable place to be in. Uh, And if you've been in the room, here's typically what happens with my wife. The first part of delivery, my wife is looking at me with like, hand is being crushed. Like I need help because there's a tight squeeze, real tight squeeze. And she's looking at me with these death glaring eyes. Like, why did you do this to me? You know, and she's shaking and she's saying things that are not filled with the spirit of God. Okay. Not of the Lord. And I always want to get logical at this moment. Like baby, Hey, it wasn't just me that got us here. Okay. So don't come at me with that tone right now. All right. And by the way, if that's where you're at, don't use that argument. Now is not the time to get logical. Okay, I tried it on the first one. It did not end well. So you just dial that one back. But on the, uh, after you, you've experienced the birth of this new baby and they bring it out in the blanket and they wipe it off and they hand it to the mother, what happens to her face? The anguish gets wiped away. There's tears of joy. There's a spirit of gratitude. They look up at you and say, look at our family. I love you so much. Look, what, look what's happened. We get to raise this kid together. And I'm like, I'm still trying to recover with my hand. The hand is still recovering. And so um, that's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. Your, your momentary uh, trial or sorrow is going to be really ushered in. Uh, joy is going to be ushered into that place. The joy of seeing Jesus Christ risen from the grave is going to wipe away any of the sorrow you experienced at the foot of the cross as you saw him nailed there. And uh, he makes this crazy promise here. He says, the joy that I'm offering you, my disciples, is not a joy that can be taken from you. And that matters because the world is offering you a happiness, but that happiness is at best temporary. Jesus is saying, I've come to give you something that no one, not your parents, your boss, not your neighbor, not your not your old boyfriend or girlfriend. No one can take this from you. Nothing can take this from you. So the question I asked when I saw that verse is I said, I want that kind of joy in my life. How do I get it? Well, remember, we're in the Bible and we're in the context where he's talking to a particular people. His 11 disciples, one, he says in this verse, he says, you will see me and your hearts will rejoice. What he means is that he's going to appear to them bodily, resurrected after uh, his crucifixion. He's going to raise from the grave and he's going to show up and he's going to have dinner with them. And when they have dinner together, after they've seen Jesus get executed on a cross, their hearts are going to be flooded with joy. But additionally, he's, he's not just talking about that because if he was just talking about that, then we would be like, okay, how does this fit into our story? But I think you have to understand the greater context. Throughout John chapter 13 through 16, this is what theologians call the final discourse. Jesus is basically giving his marching order saying, hey, here's what's in front of me. I'm going to ascend to the Father. But he says, I'm not going to leave you like orphans on this side of eternity. Instead, I'm going to send my helper, the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit is going to do is bring my power and my life inside of you. 
And in Galatians chapter 5, we understand what the Spirit's work in our life is. He says, you'll experience the fruit of the Spirit. You'll experience love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. He, he, he says, listen, one of the things that's going to be ushered into your life is my life. And Jesus Christ is the fullness of joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He never lost his joy. The world could not take his joy. And Jesus is looking at us as his people and saying, listen, I'm going to put my joy and my people through my spirit. Amen? That's crazy good news. That's crazy good news. And um, City Light, one of the things um, I've wrestled with is how do we as Christians live in a fallen, broken world where there is real evil, there is real darkness, um, there, real is, there is hurt and disappointments, and yet we hold on to the fullness of joy? I think it's okay and fair to ask that question. But one, I think, I think Jesus enlightens us to this. He says, basically, you're going to have trials. You're going to experience sorrow. We're going we're to acknowledge reality is not what it should be. And yet, we know that Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. He's filled us with joy, a buoyancy of the soul, a gladness of heart, and understanding what Christ has done for us that no one or no circumstance will take for us. And we know that all of the joy that we have in this moment is but just a foretaste when Jesus will come back and he will take all of the sorrow away once and for all. Jesus has promised to come back from heaven to earth, this time undo all that is evil and that is all that is unjust and all that is wrong, and he will wipe every tear and he will usher us into a fullness of joy. What good news, amen? And so Christians, um, here's one of the things that happens. Uh, Maybe I'm extroverted, maybe I'm loud, People call me a little um, hyperly joyful. Like somebody just called me Smiley in college. That was the nickname. I was like, bro, that's not even nice, okay? Um, And then some people, like even in my own Christian camp, like they're like, dude, why are you always so filled with joy? Don't you know the world is broken? And I'm like, yes, dude, but don't you understand the grave is empty? Like I'm not trying to be joyful because it's positive, encouraging K-love and we're supposed to wear a Christian veneer and just smile all the time. I'm not afraid to cry with you guys. But I also know that I think the Christian's disposition is one of rejoicing. Rejoice in all things. Rejoice always. Why? Because Jesus Christ has conquered our enemies. Because Jesus Christ has allowed us to be forgiven. Because Jesus, the innocent one, died for the guilty. Why? Because Jesus has invited us into his mission. Because Jesus has put his joy in our very heart. So it's okay to smile. Some of y'all look just mildly angry all the time. Like, dude, you have the same Jesus in you, you know? And I just think about the environment of heaven. And like, I want our church to model that. Is that okay for me to say? Like, you're going to dance in heaven. Like, there's no sitting that one out, okay? And so why don't we just go ahead and we can get a little carried away up in here sometimes. Don't be judging your neighbor. They just got joy that you ain't ready to experience yet, Okay. I I want us to be a joyful people, not so that we can look awesome and like we're upbeat and always okay. I want us to be a joyful church because I I want us to to show the watching world that our joy is not tied to the environment that we're in. Our joy is tied to the Jesus Christ that has come within. Amen? Amen. Thank you for the one shout out, spirit-filled person over here. (laughs) All right, point two is our joy is received through prayer. Our joy is received through prayer prayer. Can any of you guys remember the time when you guys were like a new Christian and maybe, or you weren't even a Christian yet and you tried to pray? I remember being not yet a Christian, not yet believing in Jesus. And yet um, my Spanish final in 10th grade was the thing that brought me to prayer. 
was like, Lord, if you would just do this. If I get by this one, I promise I will, I'll be a better person this weekend, you know? Like I'm trying to make deals with God. And I remember praying, hey, this girl's really cute in study hall. If you would just maybe line things up for me, you know, that would be awesome. And really my prayer life was me-centered. God, as long as you're useful, you serve me. You make this happen for me. Do this for me. And then I experienced Jesus, and what does he do? He says, no, no, no. What happens in your heart by the Spirit of God is you go to God and say, God, I want to serve you. I want to worship you. I want to be about your fame and your glory. I want my life to count for you. So God, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to just try to get you to serve me. Instead, I see that you've already served me through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Let my whole life be about serving you. And in the midst of those kind of prayers, God moves on our behalf. And it says that in our scriptures, that it's going to add to our experience of joy. As we walk in that way, as we pray in that way, and we see God move on our behalf. So let me show you guys how this gets worked out. Um, verse 22 through verse 25, he says this. In that day, in that day, um, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your, get this, that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying, I'm going away. But one of the lifetime lines that you have to me, one of the things that you're going to be able to connect me to, with me through is by prayer. And Jesus gives us a couple of theological truths that I do want us to actually pay attention to. So let me make a couple observations here. Number one, Jesus tells us to pray in his name. He says, pray in my name. He says it twice. Pray in my name. When you pray in my name, you haven't prayed in my name, but now you're going to pray in my name. What does that mean? What that doesn't mean is that Jesus needs a shout out at the end of your prayer so he can, because he's a little insecure. You got to say, you pray your prayers and then just mention Jesus and he, he feels acknowledged and he feels good. That's not what he's calling you to do. He, he's not saying if you just say Jesus's name after asking for a boat, that you know what? God the Father will come out and be the genie in the bottle that you've always wanted him to be. He's not saying that. He's not saying if you just ask for these things and you throw on the name of Jesus, then it's just going to be given to you. Some theologians have tried to hijack this verse and get it to mean that God is here to serve you. But listen, God has never come in here just to, to serve you. He, he has always been about his glory. He's primary. He's big. So um, let me show you that what this actually does mean. When we pray in the name of Jesus, it means that we have access to our Father based on the merits of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection. It's crazy because I think we take this for granted so often as Christians that we have God's attention and ear. That we get to draw near to him and commune with him. Do you guys understand all, people in the Old Testament, they didn't just have access to God. They had to go through a priest and a mediator and then maybe. But we, as the people of God, on this side of the cross, we get God's ear because he says you are no longer orphans trying to get God's attention. You are his children and that he's promised to hear your prayer. A holy God hears the prayers of an unholy, unrighteous, sinful people. Why? Because Jesus Christ has taken on our sin and reconciled us back to the Father so that we have access to him. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? It's because we can come to the, the throne room of God because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Christian, this is crazy good news because this means that God hears your prayer even when you're at your very worst. Like your spiritual performance doesn't turn God's ear towards you. Crushed it this week. My prayer life is going to be on fire. Blew it this week. God probably won't hear my prayer. Not the God of the Bible. You have God's attention, affection, 
and love. Why? Because you believed in his son. I love later in this verse, he says um, that God the Father won't just listen to you, but he loves you. Why? Why does he love you? Why does he hear your prayers? Why does he care about you as his child? It says because you believed in the very son of God and Jesus Christ. It changes the whole posture of the relationship. So some of you guys, men, like you grew up like me, and if you ever did prayer, you prayed out of a spirit of fear, timidity, probably judgment, probably being condemned. God doesn't like me. The Christian gets to pray with confidence that we can approach God boldly because our Father loves us and we're nothing but children in his lap. Amen? We pray in Jesus' name. Number two, he thinks he shows us is that we pray for things that honor Jesus. The way this gets built out in our text, he says um, in verse 23, uh, you can circle this little phrase. He says, in that day. And he repeats that phrase a few times to his disciples. And he's saying, in, this, in that day, what he's doing is he's pointing the disciples forward to a time that Jesus will raise from the grave. He will send his Holy Spirit. They will be empowered by the very Spirit of God. And that's going to change their desires, their affections, their attitudes. It's going to change everything from the inside out. So he says, in that day day, he's pointing them forward. He's saying, you're not going to just be praying, Lord, help me fit in my skinny jeans and bring back my hair. You're going to be praying, God, do your work and your will through me. And it's amazing when you pray for prayers uh, that honor and glorify King Jesus, we can come to him with a sense of expectation. Lastly, he says this, he says, Jesus promised that our prayers would lead to his glory and our joy. Verse 24, he says, your joy will be full. Your joy will be full. He says, you can ask the father and he will actually give you what you've asked him for. You know, it's okay to come with a sense of expectation to the foot of the cross and say, God, I need you here and actually expect him to actually do a work in your life. He's not just calling you to pray so you can go through the motions of prayer. He wants to build your faith as you ask and you receive. You ask and you receive. It's incredible. Let me tell you, I want to confess to you guys as I was wrestling with this, that um, for a long season of my life, I didn't agree with Jesus' theology on prayer. People would be like, let's, let's pray. I, I see what you see on our campus. I see what you see in our city. You know what we need to do. We need to get up at 7 a.m. in the morning on Wednesdays, and we need to pray that God would move. And I'd be kind of like, you can go do that, but I'm going to start a website or a video campaign. I'm going to do some stuff, maybe do an outreach. But I think God is saying, no, 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 no. The way the kingdom of God moves forward isn't by just your action, but by, its, by recognizing that God is big and you are small. Whenever we flip this, we're big, he's small, you've got prayerless Christianity. You're no longer in a humble posture as a child at the father's feet. Instead, you want to play king and you think you can do it without him. We've been designed to be in this relationship with the father where we even ask him for our daily bread. We come to him with the most basic requests. So um, one of the fun things is that he's saying this will add to our joy uh, when we, we ask God for things and he actually answers our prayer. And uh, it's been true. It's been true. I remember one of the very first prayers that I ever asked God for is um, I was reading a verse uh, in the New Testament and God said, forgive as you have been forgiven. Okay. And the spirit of God brought to mind the fact that I was living in a spirit of uh, bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. My story is one where I was born into a single parent family. And before I was even born, my dad, my birth father walked out on our family. Didn't want to be a dad, didn't want that responsibility, didn't want that weight, and so he bounced. And so here I am, I'm growing up with mom, and I'm upset 
that this dad that was supposed to be the one that protected us and provided for our family, he bounced. And so I'm enslaved to unforgiveness and anger. And that's the thing that's driving me, that impacts the way I see people and relate to people. And I knew it was a poison to my soul. And I didn't know what to do with it. And then I see this verse and realize that God has forgiven me for much and that he's called me to forgive. Now, how many of you guys have read verses like that and said, okay, that's cool, but I have no idea how I'm actually supposed to do that. Like, there's no power in me. I can't just hit the forgive button, right? Like, I got a hard heart. How am I going to make it soft? And so I went to the Lord and said, here's what happens when, you, when God's called you to do something and you don't know how to do it. You pray. And you say, God, I, I don't know what to do with this stuff in here. Would you help me in my unforgiveness, in my anger, in my bitterness? And would you wipe my heart clean and make my heart soft and not allow me to be enslaved at the things that have enslaved me anymore? And guess what God did? He actually did it. It's incredible. Just this last year, I remember um, praying over my wife in the hospital. And uh, uh, here we were. She's on bed rest. We don't know what's before us. And I just put my hands on her womb and just prayed for this little son, that God would sustain his life, that God would give me the joy of seeing his eyes, that God would give me the joy of hearing his laugh, laughter. And then here I am this week. My son's eight months old. He's rolling around on the floor. He's drooling all over himself. He's doing what eight-month-olds do, or some of you guys do. I don't know. But... Um, and I just was just brought to a sense of gratitude. God had heard my prayer. Like this little dude, it, to me, isn't just my baby or my son. This dude is an absolute miracle of God's grace. He's an answer to prayer. And so my heart is just filled with affection, gratitude, joy. I've prayed. God's moved. It's been incredible. Now, God has always answered every single one of my prayers. Um, and sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. And sometimes he lovingly says not right now. I prayed for some things early on in my Christian life. Really grateful that God said no to those things, okay? Um, has anybody else been 19 and prayed some things that you're happy, really? You don't remember praying for that girlfriend that you would marry her and then God said no and you were upset? Now you look back and you said God spared me? Okay, anyways. Um, <laughs> oh, it's so funny. So real though, it really happened. Um, <laughs> at City Light, though, at City Light, I hope you guys, you guys have had experienced great joy in this place. You know, our story is really one of answered prayer. We cannot tell the City Light story of what God has corporately done in this church family without giving praise and glory and honor to the one who heard our prayers and answered our prayers. You guys got to know by now, this thing is not about a few dudes that came together and had a strategy and made some stuff happen with a little hustle. That's not our story. Dude, I'm like, for sure, ADD. And Gavin is, I mean, he's got some issues as well. He jumped off a rope swing and broke all the foot, all the bones in his foot. Like, we are not the dynamic duo, okay? Your confidence should not be in us. Confidence is in this incredible God who's heard our, our prayers and worked on our behalf. A couple ways I'm going to brag on God real quick. Uh, at the very beginning of this thing, Gavin asked me to plant a church. We didn't know what we should do. So we started praying on Wednesday nights in this little living room at Jack Aaron, one of our elders' house. And soon... Uh, this thing started to grow. Uh, it started with a few four families that would start praying. And then within a few more weeks, it was 20 families. In a few more weeks, it was 30 families. A few more weeks, it was 70, 80 people in this living room. And it was packed. And we, this was on a way quicker timeline than we had anticipated. We thought we'd pray for a few years and maybe ease into something. 
It was like three weeks later, we were out of space and we need to figure out something to do. So what we do, we started praying, God, would you provide a building? God, would you do a work? God, God, would you, would you provide in some way? And if you want to drop on a free building, we'll receive that. Okay. And we said Jesus name. So it worked. Okay. No, um, but, but we did, we said, God, would you do a work? And he did. And so uh, a few weeks later, we got led to this building up the block on 40th and Nicholas, it was an old abandoned Presbyterian church. You guys, uh, at the time it was completely like abandoned. It had like one bathroom, no parking space for 200, lots of bats. I mean, it was 100% the church fixer, fixer upper model. And Gavin looked at it and said, this is where we're supposed to go. And I trusted him. So we prayed, God, would you help us to, to get this building? And guess what? A few days later, People from our denomination, Christian Missionary Alliance, heard about this little group praying, <laughs> said, hey, we believe the spirit of God is on you and we want to write you a check for $100,000. And we went to Mexico for two years and then came back <laughs> and then came back and said, okay, now it's time. Um, <laughs> it was crazy, a crazy answer to prayer, was it not? I mean, that was just unbelievable that God would start us in this season of asking and receiving uh, the next prayer was, God, we don't want to just have a building in the hood that we renovate with a crowd. We really want to see people in Omaha meet Jesus Christ. We want to see salvation. We want to see life change. We want people to, see, to come forward and say, I, I need to confess my sin. I need to walk out of some rebellion, walk out of some self-righteousness, and trust Jesus Christ. We held our very first public baptism, and uh, we had no, I got, no idea what God would do. Forty-three people stood up, came forward, got in the water, and said, I, I trusted in Jesus Christ and want to be baptized for his name and his glory. Amen. Can we clap right now? That's been an incredible story of what God's done. And here's my invitation for us as a church. We can't stop staying in a place of dependence on God. Like you might look around and see a crowd and see a building and we've got a few more parking stalls and a few more bathrooms and a few more dollars and a website and all that and might think, you know what? We don't need God in the same way that we needed him in the past. And you're absolutely wrong. We need God right now more than we've ever needed him. Like, I just want you to know this thing in West Omaha, this thing here, when we try to do this, I am, I am on my knees asking Jesus Christ to keep us unified, to allow us to do more in this city, that our story wouldn't be done that God wouldn't just use this to create some crowds in different pockets of the city, but that Jesus Christ would use this whole thing to call real people from death to life. And if you think that's going to happen because we bought a high V, turned it into a church and put some people on a preaching rotation, then you don't understand how the kingdom of God moves forward. We got to get low and say, Jesus Christ, we need you to do a new work in our city. Would you come and empower us to be a part of your work for your glory? Help us to embrace your mission. Help us to be great missionaries in this place. Oh God, help us to take the good news of Jesus Christ, the story that you have written, and do a mighty, mighty work in this city. Oh Lord, I pray that we would see immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Addicts set free, families restored, generational discipleship happening in the home. Oh God, would you, would you blow us all away in this very room by a wave of your grace and would our joy be made full? Amen. That was free. I got another point. Okay, last thing I want to say is our victory has been won by Jesus. Our victory has been won by Jesus. Jesus is not just the guy that we pray to or the name that we pray to. Jesus is the one who's defeated our enemies once and for all. Um, let me jump down to verse 32. He says this, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will uh, be scattered each to his own home and will leave 
uh, me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus, throughout the book of John, has said, listen, my hour has not yet come. You guys recognize that phrase? Everybody said, Jesus, now's the time. He said, my hour has not come. But now Jesus is saying, my hour has come. What he's saying is, my preaching, my teaching, those ministries are done. My primary work is upon me. I'm going to the cross to atone for the the sins of the world. Now is this moment. I'm going to be the sacrificial lamb, the innocent one that comes to die for the guilty. My hour has come. But he's going to encourage the disciples not to to walk in the season with fear or timidity, but to understand that he is going to be victorious over evil once and for all. And so let me show you verse 33. He says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, I don't know how you see Jesus. Some of you in this room, you think Jesus is a historic figure. You think that he was a teacher. You think he's an example to your kids. But Jesus is the only one in human history that can say, I have overcome the world and say it with integrity and truthfulness. Jesus Christ has come to overcome the world. And what he's saying is here is that I have conquered the evil forces in this world. The battle between good and evil, it's been decided. It doesn't hang in the balance this week. So just because you're reading the political clips and you're like, ah, evil's going to triumph. It's not going in the right direction. Take a deep breath, Christian. We know the story that God has written and that he will written or, or will write and that he's promised to do. Jesus is coming back. He's already overcome Satan, sin, and death at the cross. Jesus defeated death when he rose from the grave. Death was undefeated, and he punched it back. And we know that Jesus will come back and erase all that is evil in this world when he comes back a second time. What's amazing is that Jesus has said, I've come, overcome the world, and he did it in ways that no one expected. Jesus never uh, led an army or a great military or took power. Instead, he laid down his rights and took up a cross. He overcome the world by seeking, he didn't overcome the world by seeking acceptance by the masses, but embracing rejection from an angry mob so we could be re- reconciled to our Father. He didn't come into this world and overcome it by yelling at sinners, but before dying for them. Jesus took on a cross. Three days later, he defeated death by walking out of an empty grove. That's our Jesus. Jesus Christ is victorious. And the great news for me and you is that we don't have to try to win our own battles, prove to God that we're strong. That's not who we are. If you are a Christian, your hope is not in your strength or your your ability to overcome evil. Really what we are is a people who have believed in a victor that is greater than ourselves. Jesus Christ, the one who's conquered Satan, sin, and death, Jesus Christ, the one who won our battles, Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins, Jesus Christ, the one who came and embraced death so we could have eternal life. That's our hope. That's our call. That's who we are as Christians. If you're not yet a Christian, that's the invitation. Let me close with this. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing. We're going to pray. But I want to end our, past, our time together by just calling on the name of the Lord. I believe that as I was just praying this week, God, why is this in the Bible and why do you have it for our church? I just felt like this. This week I was invited to preach this text about joy. And if I'm really honest, my pace of life, I'm tired. It's been crazy. And uh, it's been hard for me to hold on to joy. Nobody's fault. But so often the spirit inside of me is one of grumbling, one of frustration, one one of just being annoyed that the fact that kids want to eat and they need their diapers changed every single day. It's a real mundane thing. And I, I had to preach on joy this week. And I was saying, God, I don't know if I have joy right now. Lord, what I have 
uh, is a willing spirit to continue to walk in obedience. But Lord, I don't know if I'm experiencing gladness of heart. And so if you're in that place, it's okay. But what I want to invite you into is just the, the fact that Jesus is in the business of moving us from that place into an experience with himself. Supernatural. It's real. God can give you a buoyancy of the soul and a gladness of heart that just doesn't make sense in a very mundane, broken world. Let me pray for it right now. So God, I come to you and I confess that sometimes you've called us to things that we just can't produce in our own lives. One of them is to be filled with joy. And we know that your spirit's in us, but so often, Lord, we run after our circumstances. We chase happiness. We get busy. We get tired. We get discouraged. And the song in our heart is not one of rejoicing in the one that was innocent and died for the guilty, rejoicing in the one who would adopt an orphan, rejoicing in the fact that you've used the weak things to shame the wise. God, our eyes have seen you do amazing things. Our ears have heard good news, and yet our souls are so often discouraged. God, would you right now, for those of us in this room that are just tired, would you bring joy, joy abounding, Jesus Christ, bring your joy in this place. Allow this church family to be one that doesn't just act the right way or say the right things or smile at the right time. God, we want your supernatural power in this place that those who are not of us would come into this place and say, how do these people live in ways that are greater than their circumstances? It's because the spirit of Jesus Christ dwells. So God, take up residency in our lives. Give those who are brokenhearted or tired or discouraged a joy in the midst of it all. God, we want to experience, taste, and see. And so we ask and we ask and we ask. We come to you that we may receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.